This is a crowd podcast. Joseph Stalin. Ooh. Don't stop anyone in their tracks, Katie. Hello again, and welcome to episode 28 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the history podcast that cracks open Billy Joel's rock'em sock'em action-packed hit song for the most surprising stories of the late 20th century. I'm Katie Puckrick. I'm Tom Fordyce. How did we get to where we are today, Tom? Billy thinks it might have something to do with Stalin. I think you might be right, Katie. <laughs> uh, we question Billy sometimes, don't we? Billy, why have you included such and such in your magnum opus? You couldn't get through We Didn't Start the Fire without mentioning the despotic, the charismatic, the tyrannical Joseph Stalin. I thought you were about to say something like Tyrannosaurus Rex. You started that <laughs> word tyrannical and I was I was angling for some sort of Godzilla monster. In a way, I guess impact-wise, Joseph Stalin was like that. I mean, he's pretty extra when it comes to his despotic, bloodthirsty behavior. Um, I'm kind of interested how he stacks up with the uh, the bad boys of the 20th century, your Idi Amin's, your Hitler's. Um, yeah, your dictator top trumps. Where, where does he yeah. feature? Yeah, yeah. He's, uh, he's bad news. There's a bad smell about him, for sure. And he appears, Katie, in Billy's song at this point, because of the end, because he dies in 1953. So I think Billy's popped him in there to look back at his influence over Soviet Union and the world. But, Katie, you and I could talk about this all day with very little knowledge. <laughs> Today, we have got one of those guests that you and I are very excited about. Yes. We are joined by Alex Halberstadt, the journalist and the author from New York, and critically for today's episode, the grandson of Stalin's last remaining bodyguard. Amazing. Alex, there's so much we want to talk to you about. But first, when we loved your book, Young Heroes of the Soviet Union, where you track your family history through interviews with your grandfather, through family photos and your own personal memories of your childhood. The first thing I want to know from you is when you finally sat down with your grandfather and you began to explore what he had done, what he was culpable of, what he knew about what he was doing, how was it? Because it took quite some time to track him down and find him. When you first sit down opposite this, what, 93-year-old man? How did it feel? It was uh, completely surreal. This was somebody I'd been aware of my whole life through family stories. And I had gone to a small city in Ukraine to find him, having really had one telephone conversation in our entire life. Um, it was kind of one of the strangest and most extraordinary things I'd ever experienced. There was a man who had been my father's father, who, you know, recognized me, knew that I existed only because of one photograph that he owned. And I had one photograph of him. So there we were uh, in 2004, meeting for the first time. And it was very, it was very strange just personally, you know, to kind of discover someone who was such a close relation at the age of, in my mid-30s having really never never spoken to the man in my whole life and only having heard these really oblique stories about his existence. So it was a really extraordinarily strange experience. One of the first stories that your grandfather tells you, Alex, when you track him down in this little town in Ukraine, is about the first time that he meets Stalin. And it is an extraordinary moment. It's almost like he's been parachuted into this moment in history. Just describe to us what he's doing and what he sees around him. 
It's, it's, it's a really strange story because um, my grandfather is 21 and he gets invited. He, he comes from a, a village in Ukraine and he, uh, you know, goes to, to the army and becomes very, you know, a very good soldier. And suddenly he's recruited to go to Moscow to be a student at the uh, secret police academy in Moscow. It's an organization that we know as the KGB, but now at the time it's called the OGPU, which, which is an, another acronym. And so he, you know, puts his stuff in a little cardboard suitcase, gets on a train. He had never been on a train in his whole life and goes to Moscow. And he does well at this academy and becomes the secretary of the communist party of the school, you know, being sort of like class president. Uh, and because of this, he's invited to the Kremlin to go to the 15th anniversary of the October Revolution. And he's invited to, to attend this dinner in the Kremlin. And, you know, he's 21 and he, he's in school and he walks into this room and at, at this room is the entire governing apparatus of the Soviet Union, right? And he's, of course, kind of starstruck, you know, he's surrounded by these, you know, famous Bolsheviks and, and their wives. And, you know, as he is sort of starting to get a little tipsy, you know, he's drinking vodka and, and he sees this kind of short man walk into the room who's just wearing a plain tunic. He's, you know, short and he's got this kind of pockmarked face and he kind of misses his entrance. And then he realizes with a start that he's in the presence of Stalin. You know, I mean, this is quite extraordinary. So that is how he meets him. And of course, at the moment, he's a student at this academy for secret policemen. He doesn't, the purges haven't started. We, we don't know what that's going to mean. And he certainly doesn't know that Nine years later, he's going to become this man's personal bodyguard, which is a job he will hold until Stalin's death in 1953. So that's actually the first time he meets him. And it's, it's really, and it's a very famous night because it was also on that night that Stalin's wife, Svetlana Aluyeva, committed suicide because they got into a terrible argument at that dinner that was quite public. And she, she stormed out and the following morning she was found dead in her room. And, and, the, and there was, for a while, some controversy about whether it was a murder or a suicide. I think history has come down on the side of suicide. And really, that was the moment that many people chart in history as the beginning of Stalin's descent into profound paranoia. So this is, this is a really eventful night on which to meet Stalin for the first time. Yeah, it's definitely kind of a star-crossed night. And... Looking at Stalin, how did he finagle his way into his position? Because back in his early Bolshevik days, he wasn't necessarily seen as an intellectual. He was more of a kind of a hard worker, you know, plugger away kind of guy. What were his attributes for success? Well, I th you know, Stalin began as a kind of early Bolshevik. He was part of a, you know, the Bolsheviks were essentially a terrorist group uh, during during the time of the Tsars. They were, um, he had been exiled to Siberia, I think, three times and escaped several times. Uh, he was part of a small band of Bolsheviks who were kind of trying to destabilize the government. And, you know, when the Bolsheviks overthrew the government and finally became, you know, the ruling party, the ruling coalition, Stalin really was seen as kind of a paper pusher. You know, his title was Secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, which eventually came to be the title of the head of the Soviet Union. But at the time, it was kind of a unglamorous, almost, you know, administrative position. And I think 
you know, in charting his extraordinary rise to power and then his ability to hold power for 24 years, for a quarter of a century, you know, which is extraordinary for a dictator as bloody as, you know, and as, and as kind of incredibly brutal as Stalin. It began with him wanting to essentially insinuate himself into power as somebody who was seen as harmless. But he must have had some inkling that he had uh, a nose for news and a, <laughs> and a face for his close-up because he gave himself a nom de guerre, kind of a pop star name. Stalin wasn't his real name, No, no of right? course not. Yes, Stalin man, means man of steel, and it's a very cool name, admittedly. But, but again, you know, this was not unusual. Uh, all the Bolsheviks, uh, not all the Bolsheviks, but I would say a vast majority of them had you know, cool rock star nom de guerres, you know, for instance, Kamenev, who was executed by Stalin, he means man of stone, you know, so it's very WWF, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and, and of course, they wanted to project, you know, they wanted to project toughness and, you know, and sort of resilience. So yeah, it was steel and stone and, you know. So he was quite driven. So how did he make his move and separate himself from the rest of the Bolshevik pack. I think I think Stalin saw his moment when Lenin passed away. Lenin of course was the father of the revolution and famously Stalin had a photo of, you know, the single photo that existed of him and Lenin retouched, had them brought closer together. It was an amazing photoshop job, you know. Uh, he had his arm <laughs> lengthened, he had his, you know, acne that he had from, you know, childhood illness airbrushed out and kind of that was the photo that made the rounds. So he was, you know, kind of turned himself into an heir apparent to Lenin, even though Lenin was, you know, had said that he thought Stalin was dangerous and too crude and too intolerant to, to be the, the ruler of the country. And I think that's when he made his move and kind of essentially started to very quickly consolidate power. And again, you know, he kind of came out of nowhere because, in a sense, he had been cultivating this image of a kind of paper pusher, of somebody who was harmless, you know, not too dissimilarly to the way that Putin came to power, whom uh, Boris Yeltsin, his predecessor, saw as essentially a harmless bureaucrat, you know, and who turned out to be anything but. There's a lesson for us here, Katie, isn't there? If you work in an office, it's not the uh, boss you need to look out for. It's the quiet person in the corner <laughs> pushing paper who is secretly plotting to take over the place where you work. Alex, by the time in November 1932 that your grandfather meets Stalin for the first time, how would he have felt about Stalin? Would he have been terrified by the mention of his name? Would he have been aware of some of the stuff that he had been doing? Was, was there already a cult of personality about him for the ordinary Russian? It's, it's an interesting question. 1932 is, you know, he, uh, Stalin was kind of launching his, you know, the hunger that would envelop much of the countryside, you know. Uh, millions of people died, starved to death, because what he had essentially done is privatized farming. But the, the years of complete megalomania of him becoming kind of a living god, of him, you know, sort of the, the cult of personality that in, eventually ensued certainly hadn't come around yet. It certainly hadn't reached its incredible apotheosis, where, you know, Russia was full of banners. You know, the, there were these red banners hung almost everywhere that would say things like, Thank you, Comrade Stalin, for our happy childhood. When did he start putting the more uh, final methods of control into place, these uh, prison camps and executions? What, what brought those on? I think 1937, 1936, 37, 38 were definitely the kind of peak years of, of the Great Terror, where most of the people who were sort of summarily executed or put into the gulag system 
kind of entered it. And those, you know, those years were the years where Stalin's program became complete, you know, where you really started to see how it would function. And this also included, you know, millions of people who were part of slave labor brigades. This is what he did with a lot of prisoners is he, is he actually made them build these enormous monuments of, to communism that he had commissioned. Well, what is so incredible about it is it really became this kind of moment of mass hypnosis where, you know, people believed that they were under attack, that people among them, including sometimes people in their own homes, were spies and conspirators, and that what was happening was essentially a response to the state of emergency. You know, it's really interesting. You know, there's, there's a famous quote from Hermann Goering, who was the head of the German army during uh, the Nazi years, who was interviewed right before the Nuremberg trials, or maybe it was, it was during the Nuremberg trials, and who essentially said, you know, to, to the interviewer who had asked him, you know, all you need to do to get people to do the bidding of the state is to tell them they're under attack and then condemn the pacifists for their lack of patriotism. And he said it works in any, any country, regardless of whether it's a democracy or a monarchy or a dictatorship. And, and in a sense, that's been the blueprint, right? Because that is what, that is what Stalin did, that is what Mao did, that is what Trump did. So, you know, you have this incredibly kind of almost classic playbook for dictatorship. And of course, Stalin said that the enemy was not just outside, but they were also inside, that it could be your father, your uncle, your sister. And so when men came in the night to arrest your family members, uh, you know, under the charges of what they called counter-revolutionary agitation was the, was the official term for what you were guilty of when you were put into the gulag. Um, you know, uh, I remember asking a member of my family, my stepfather's mother, who was a young woman during the war years, who, whose father was arrested in the night in the late 30s. And I said, did you believe that your father was a spy? And she said, absolutely. We all believed it, you know. So, so that is what was really incredible, is that people actually were, in a sense, kind of in this state of almost mass hypnosis, where they believe that their own family members, their spouses, their, you know, not everyone, of course, but, but millions of people believed that this was just, that, that what was happening was justified and was, you know, just punishment for conspiracy, for spying, for, you know, kind of anti-government activity. Oh, I need a little second to let that sink in. So let's have some ads. Hello there. This is my friend Joe. Hi. Now, Joe plays rugby for England. Yeah, what's your point? Come on. Well, Joe presents a podcast, and it's my firm belief that you should listen to it. Very interesting. And here's why. Because it's not actually a rugby podcast, because, well, let's face it, there's billions of them already. No, 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 no. It's about you, the listener, and the jobs you do. If you're a teacher, an astronaut, a tree surgeon, or a chef then we've got loads of questions for you. The Joe Marler Show, because everyone is interesting if you ask the right questions. That's a great line. That's a, that is a very good line from you, Tom. Thank you, Joe. You want to find it? Search for The Joe Marler Show in your podcast app. Because everyone is interesting if you ask the right questions. So your grandfather is witness to this extraordinary period of history and this extraordinary man, Alex. And one of the most fascinating bits of your book for me was as you gradually unpeel the layers when you're sitting down with this old man in this nowhere sort of town and you're gradually unpeeling the layers of 
what he saw, what he understood, how culpable he was. And there's a very affecting image the night before you say goodbye to him, where it's nearly midnight and you think the conversation is over. And then he just clasps your hands and he looks into your eyes and says, I was frightened every single day. Yeah, that that was really moving for me because essentially what was happening is, you know, he was meeting his grandson for the first time. And of course, here I come from New York and I'm I'm a little bit more than he bargained for in the sense that I'm also a journalist and I'm also there to find out about his life. This is not just a visit where we watch TV and, you know, talk about the weather. And I really want to know what he lived through. And I kind of, you know, start interrogating him a little bit. And And there's a moment where he kind of just keeps not wanting to talk about those years and his wife, uh, who was a sprightly 82, um, it was sort of a November-December relationship at that point. And, um, you know, she slams her hand on the table and goes, oh, come on, just tell him everything. You know, she, she sort of, you know, says, we're, come on, we're old, what is there to lose? I mean, this was half a century ago. Just tell him the truth, Vasily, is what she said. And, and he does. I mean, you know, and I know that it wasn't the whole truth. It wasn't everything. It wasn't exhaustive. But he did tell me a lot of things that really were, um, you know, terrifying and terrible uh, about participating in genocides, about watching, you know, being in cars where, you know, with, with uh, Lavrenti Beria, the head of the secret police, while he whisked young girls off the street who were then disappeared, you know. And of course, after all this, he was deeply aware that he had just told me that he, of his participation in all of these essentially war crimes. And they weren't war crimes. They were because a lot of them took place in, in you know, country in a time of peace, right? So I think for him, you know, he still, it was a moment where he wanted to, to explain to me how he, 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 he did all of this, of, 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 you know, what it was like to have participated in these atrocities, because here I am, you know, this grandson from peacetime America, right? How do you understand somebody who did all of these things and still think of them as a human being, right? And not a monster. And I think for him, it was really important. This is what he wanted to tell me the whole time, is that, you know, all of his friends, all of his co-workers just kept disappearing, whether being arrested or, you know, shot or some of them committed suicide, you know, Everyone is just constantly disappearing, and nobody more than the members of the secret police where he worked, who were, you know, purged twice entirely uh, in the late 30s. And then, you know, as a bodyguard of Stalin, you know, the bodyguards of Stalin were mostly arrested and sent, sent to the gulag after Stalin died because Beria, who had succeeded him very briefly, wanted to make sure that everyone close to Stalin had been dealt with. Um, he had lived through this incredible moment. And what he wanted to tell me is he was scared every single day, that every single day he was operating under conditions of fearing for his life. And he, and he told me this very quick story about being at the Yalta conference with, uh, with Stalin as, as his bodyguard and meeting someone in, the, uh, in FDR's uh, Secret Service detail and actually kind of striking up kind of a casual friendship with them and kind with, of, you know. Oh, with, the, with this American cohort. With the American cohort and then having somebody on his fellow bodyguard say, you know, kind of make a joke and say, oh, you know, consorting with the capitalist. That looks suspicious. And of course, you know, he might have been joking, but my, 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 you know, I think my grandfather took the hint and every time he saw this American guy show up, he would just run in the other direction because he was now so afraid that he would be, you know, 
sort of that he was he was spotted, you know, talking to an American. So, you know, and and who knows whether that there was a real threat there, but obviously the threat was was real. It was operating under the conditions of constant fear, and that's how, how the society existed. How did he even survive uh, Beria's purges after Stalin's death, or how did he manage to evade the displeasure of Stalin? Was it just dumb luck? I think luck is always a part of it because there was just so much, so much death. But I think, I think my grandfather was somebody who was very good at seeming naive. He was someone who never, he didn't talk much. He was pretty quiet. And interestingly, you know, having served in the secret police for quite a long time, you know, for most of the 1930s, he never got promoted. He never, you know, for somebody who was quite the go-getter, he, he never went to conventions or congresses or, you know, like I found the book of all of the party congresses and, other, and people who received like medals and orders, and he was nowhere on that list. And he told me that, you know, in those years, you kind of had to stay low. You had to, you know, not move into the leadership because if you did, you were going to get, you were going to, you know, get purged, you know, because you were going to become, you were going to get in somebody's way. And so his strategy for those years was to be quiet, to do your job quietly, to not get involved with, with anybody in leadership positions, and to essentially keep your head down. So I think... I think luck had a lot to do with it, but I think also he had a personality that was suited well for this kind of job, which was to be kind of, you know, a little bit of a gray mouse. Did you get a sense at all when you were talking to him of any justification he'd, he'd made even internally, even to himself, for his actions or any sense of him reconciling himself to this awful past? You know, he told me when we were talking uh, during our meeting, you know, I said, how did you justify this to yourself, you know? And he said, well, you know, we really believed in our mission that we were cutting the rot. He, what he said is we were cut, cutting the rot from the apple's core, you know, that we were, you know, the, the idea was that the society was rotten and, and he was, you know, helping kind of get the rot out. He said, we believed it all. And, you know, of course, how can you know, you know, because clearly there were so many people uh, being arrested and processed through, you know, the secret police that, and confessions were beaten out of people, they were tortured out of people. And he knew that. Uh, so, and he, because he was part of, part of the system. So I, I don't know whether I believed him completely when he said it, I guess is what I mean, because the absurdity of it must have set in fairly quickly, you know, that, that this wasn't really a judicial system, even under the terms of Stalinism, it really was kind of a purge factory. And, and, and that's what becomes really hard to believe, because when you read accounts of that time, you know, people were really arrested by quota. You know, there was a quota that the KGB would phone into some field office, not the KGB, the NKVD, you know, but the, the secret police would phone into, you know, some kind of regional office and saying, you need to arrest, you know, what a, I don't know, 50 people a day. And, you know, sometimes there wasn't time, I'm sure, to figure out if anybody was really guilty. It was just, you know industrial purge machine that, that, that Stalin had created. And it's, you know, it's truly terrifying to think about, you know, what those years must have been like. Mm. So your grandfather, Alex, would have been there in the last years of Stalin, where he seems to cut quite a different figure. So from the end of the Second World War to his death, he only makes three public speeches. He spends a lot of time in his dasher. He has five-month holidays. And... There must have been, for your grandfather, 
who had seen these things happen and had a fair idea of how the wind was blowing, there must have been a fair amount of panic from your grandfather because he knows that if Stalin goes, what does it mean for the men around Stalin? Yes, after the war, you know, Stalin kind of became, as you said, much more private and, and much less of a public figure. There are a lot of biographies and a lot of different theories about what had happened in those years, but um, one set piece from those years is, is Stalin would have these dinners, all-night dinners on his dacha, where he would invite kind of the ruling circle of the Communist Party, um, people in some cases that he'd known for decades, and he would invite them and, and actually kind of force them to drink, to drink a lot of vodka and stay there all night, you know. And essentially he would, and he would sit there and he would be sober. He wouldn't drink at all. And I think in his, in those years where I think there was some real paranoia uh, that had characterized Stalin's behavior, you know, I think he wanted to see if he could uncover secrets or lapses or, and then at some point the guards would come in one of which was my grandfather, and lead them back to their cars. And I think it was, I don't remember which one of them said it, but one of them said, you never knew whether they were taking you to your car or to prison, you know. I think that gives maybe a little a little of a sense of Stalin's mindset at the time. And of course, when uh, in 1953, when Stalin dies, nobody in the Soviet Union really knew everything. It was a system of disinformation. So when I did interview, you know, leading historians of Stalin's life, you know, they said we, you know, so much of, about it is still not known because in a totalitarian system, you know, the truth is dangerous. And so we still are kind of trying to figure out what happened. I mean, we know so much less about Stalin than we do about, say, you know, Eisenhower, you know, or, or Churchill because information was so real information. The truth was so hard to come by. So, so Stalin, I think, will always remain historically a fuzzier figure than, you know, his counterparts in the West. Yeah, because uh, I understand that the FSB, the uh, the the group that followed the KGB, the rebranded KGB, have been known to destroy evidence of the Stalin-era gulags and their atrocities. So just kind of rewriting history, even though it's within still living memory. Yeah, they're, they're, they destroyed a huge a huge uh, archive of people who were. Um, I mean, in, in this case, where I think it was literally ID cards. Okay prisoner ID cards that were held at an archive in, in, in Russia. And, you know, in some cases, this literally was the last proof that these people existed. This was literally the last document that they had ever been on this planet. And so, you know, I, I think this is an incredible crime against history and against humanity, you know, but this was something that, you know, was carried out on Putin's order. So Stalin dies almost 70 years ago, or around 70 years ago. Alex, you got this really interesting idea in your book about how trauma can be passed through generations. So when we look at the way Russia is today, and also you talk really affectingly in your book about the nightmares that you suffered as a young child. And so Stalin may be long gone, but his influence may be percolating through Russian society, through the lives of Russian emigrants, even now. Yeah, I mean, um, in 2013, you know, we started to see these scientific studies that were, at first, were really kind of unbelievable, uh, showing that baby mice remembered the trauma of their parents, even though they never themselves experienced it. And we still don't fully understand how that knowledge is transmitted genetically. But, you know, the, the best thought is that there are these genetic markers called 
you know, that we study in something called epigenetics that essentially transmit this relatively recent experience uh, across generations. But it was such an it was such a fascinating lens, you know. And I'm not a scientist, and, and certainly this is still re really new science that is still being worked out. But every every study that has been undertaken, both with humans and with animals, has really found the same thing, that, that we do ha carry this information inside us. And that, you know, for one study in New York found that children and grandchildren of Holocaust survivors had a, you know, enormously elevated propensity for post-traumatic stress disorder, right? Even though it had nothing to do with what was happening in their own lives. Th these studies came out while I was writing this book, and they kind of turned it around a little bit because I started to think, well, what does this mean, not just for a family, but what does this mean for an entire society? You know, given that so much of Russian society today seems to operate on these mechanisms of fear, of xenophobia, of still having, you know, so many people in Russia today will tell you that they want to, that Russia needs a strong leader, that it is not ready for democracy, you know, that it, you know, that, that if Putin was to be essentially, you know, retired or, you know, removed from power, the country would fall into complete chaos and lawlessness, you know, th th this is the thinking of people who are traumatized, that this is the thinking of people who are organically terrified, right? And of course, I, I don't think that's a, you know, I'm not, I'm not making anything like a scientific argument here, I'm not qualified to do that, but as a thought experiment, I think it's really fascinating, because you, you are seeing not just a group of people dealing with contemporary events, but you're dealing with somebody who inherited, you know, generations and generations of this of this really tragic history well alex thank you so much for sharing your personal memories your family's memories your experiences and your knowledge of this extraordinary time and and writing such a beautiful book i mean the book is extraordinary it's uh it's so immersive and it's so brutal and it's so poetic it is young heroes of the soviet union a memoir and a reckoning by alex halberstadt our esteemed expert today on Stalin. Thank you, Alex. Alex Halberstadt was absolutely riveting. Yeah, wasn't he? I mean, we didn't even get into the horror show of the horrible brutalities that Stalin got up to. But if you are interested, listeners, it's all in the book, Young Heroes of the Soviet Union. Can't recommend it enough. Yeah, so I think we should thank Billy Joel for including Stalin. We said at the start he had to include Stalin. Yeah. He did, but it's brought us to Alex and those amazing stories. So, Billy, thanks very much. Yeah, two thumbs up, Billy. And next week, Katie, Billy's given us another treat because he gives us Georgi Malenkov, who is the man who succeeds Joseph Stalin when he dies. Yes. As de facto leader of the Soviet Union. Very neat, Billy. Very neat. And this is one of those things that I wouldn't have known had I not kazooed along with <laughs> We Didn't Start the Fire. Yeah. And if you want another podcast to listen to, you can search for Murder in House 2. If you love true crime podcasts, you'll love this. Yeah, it's taken 15 years to make this podcast, and it's about a group of Marines who went into a village in the Iraq war and killed 24 innocent civilians, a lot of them women and children. It includes top-secret, never-before-heard recordings. Just search for Murder in House 2. And, you know, if you want a piece of us, you guys, you can follow us at Spread That Fire, or you can email at fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk. And you can subscribe because it actually really, really does help us. And, you know, and maybe give some helpful suggestions about who we should have on 
as a future expert. Perhaps it could be you, could be an expert you know, could be a super fan, could be an academic, could be an author, could just be a general busybody know-it-all. Have a look at the lyrics online to We Didn't Start the Fire and let us know who we should have on. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present, if you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Our lives were never the same after we learned our 21-year-old daughter, Kristen, was murdered by her ex-boyfriend. It's a parent's worst nightmare. How much did we really know about domestic violence back then? Clearly not enough. Now we know plenty. We know domestic violence, or DV, can happen to anyone. One in three women suffer physical violence at the hands of intimate partners during their lifetimes. One in three. I'm Bill Mitchell, host of the When Dating Hurts podcast. And my interviews with DV counselors, law enforcement, and especially actual DV survivors give the pandemic of domestic violence the attention it deserves. The When Dating Hurts podcast. It's a series of lives being saved. <laughs> 